ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Hello and welcome to ID the Future. I'm Casey Laskin, and today we're speaking again with Dr. Gunter Beckley. He is a senior fellow at Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture, and he's a paleoentomologist with specializations in insects, especially dragonflies. He has a PhD in geosciences from Eberhard Karls University in Tübingen, Germany, and he formerly served as curator for amber and fossil insects in the Department of Paleontology at the State Museum of Natural History in Stuttgart, Germany. Now, in a previous podcast, we discussed with you, Gunter, your new argument you've been developing on the fact that there are various species which diverged millions of years ago, yet they have undergone very little morphological divergence. And this sort of counters claims that species can evolve to a very large degree, say during the Cambrian explosion in just a few million years. And so we're talking about the implications of this and what it means. So thanks for coming back on a second podcast with us. Great to be back. So let's talk about mammals a little bit, Gunter. I remember a number of years ago, I was reviewing a curriculum for Texas. The Texas State Board of Education was looking at what kinds of curricula they were going to adopt. And we were asked to provide our perspective on some of those curricula. And one of these curricula had a purported example of the creative power of Darwinian evolution by discussing nearly identical squirrel populations on opposite sides of the Grand Canyon. And the curriculum called it an example of a quote unquote, new species of squirrel, even though these populations were, were almost identical. I mean, you could see them in the pictures. They were highly, highly similar, at least to my eye. I'm sure an expert could tell them apart, but clearly there was very, very little of any morphological change. And I do hear the points you're making about how there are certain traits that do seem like they're not that difficult to evolve, changes in size. Uh, We've seen changes in the different types of bird beaks in the finches of the Galapagos Islands. And there seems to be a a relatively, you know, uncomplicated genetic basis for making those changes. So there are certain things which can change, but the basic morphology is not going to change. So can you give us some examples from mammals, which are obviously the types of organisms that we're most familiar with for the most part? Sure. And, and maybe first uh, to, to address this, this claim that this shows evolution because there are new species uh, originating. This is uncontroversial and not even young earth creationists would dispute that you can get by, let's say, Darwinian processes, several squirrel species from a founder species or even the Darwin finches from a founding Darwin finch species. That's not controversial. That's not the point of the issue of of criticism of the neo-Darwinian process. The critical issue is... Can this also explain the origin of new body plans, of new structures, how the bird feather came about, and not just how new finch species originated from a finch species? So if we look at at actual examples from the animals where we have these molecular clock datings, for example, if you look at the house mouse and the, the house rat, then of course there's an easy difference that you can spot when you see them side by side is the rat is much bigger, but if you have two photos and you put them to the same scale, then it's already a little bit more difficult to tell the difference between the house mouse and the house rat. And when did they separate? They separated about 20 million years ago, four times the time available for the whale transition. Other examples that would be about the same time frame, if you look at the cow relationship and would compare, for example, a, a cattle with a European bison, 
And uh, if you look at some breeds uh, which are more archaic of the cattle, uh, like the, these Highland cattle from Scotland, and compare it to a European bison, they are very much alike, and they have separated about the same time frame as the the uh, as in the whale example. And lo and behold, if you bring them together in captivity, they can still interbreed and can produce fertile offspring. And the same is with horse and ass, which are either fertile or infertile. They have separated about seven to eight million years ago. Elephants, example, uh, if you compare Asian and African elephants, separated about 25 million years uh, ago. And only differences are a little bit ear size. And uh, one has two tips on the trunk and the other just one tip on the trunk and a little bit different shape of the back, but otherwise uh, totally identical in terms of body plan. So I looked at other examples of carnivores like, like bears, which still can hybridize, for example, spe uh, South American spectacled bear with the Asian black bear uh, in zoo ca zoos can still produce hybrids. And uh, I looked at hippos, for example, because they are interesting in comparison to this whale example, because they are, according to molecular studies, the closest relatives of whales. Uh, the, the hippos are considered as the sister group of whales. And uh, there are two recent species. One is the, the river hippo, the big one, and the other is the West African pygmy hippo. And the biggest difference is the size. But if you again look at photos that are put to the same scale, they look very much alike and they separated about 10 million years ago. And then I looked into whales because I was comparing it with a whale evolution example. And there, if you look at the same time frame to see what can, what can evolution do with whales, then you have about the difference between a common dolphin and a bottlenose dolphin, which basically look identical. That happened in, in this time frame of about 4 million years. So final example, which is maybe most interesting for us, is, of course, to look at the big African apes and at humans. And, and there is something interesting going on. If we look at the fossil record, the separation of chimps from humans uh, allegedly happened about 6 million years ago. That basically agrees with the molecular clock estimates of about 6.7 million years ago. Uh, but of course, most people wouldn't necessarily agree that we are very similar to chimps. So now you have two options. Either you can play the uh, very liberal uh, biologist who says, well, that's just superficial. And uh, to zebras, other zebras uh, look uh, very different and they only look alike for us. And because we are humans, we think we look different from chimps, but actually we are very similar to chimps and uh, there is not a big difference. Then the example would basically fit into the whole pattern. But I would rather think that most people would agree that there is a big difference between chimps and humans, not the least for, for, for our cultural abilities and, and mental abilities and that we walk upright and so on. And if there is a difference, then this is the only example I could find. And wouldn't this be strange that humans are the only exception from the rule that, uh, that this would in a way confirm a kind of human exceptionalism that we are not alike to, to all the other animals 
So uh, I found this quite quite fascinating because that, that that's an unexpected finding in the, from from this comparison. And as you and I discussed, Gunter, before the podcast, the fact that you find large morphological change in a short period of time, you still have to answer the question: Is it mathematically possible to generate this in that amount of time? Yeah, and it could be an example of design going on. And so you know, obviously, there could be design with common descent, sort of a guided form of common descent. There could be design exactly. without common descent. But either way, you can't just say, oh, this diverged greatly in a short period of time. Therefore, Darwinian evolution has great creative power. We can actually test those claims mathematically. I know that you've, exactly. you've done some great work on this and some of the research you're doing with the Waiting Times Project. So let, let's get to an objection to your hypothesis. Sure. This is one that has come up on the internet. And I know that you have been working on responses to these arguments. And it's an argument, actually, that I saw about, let's see, 2009, there were some responses to the textbook Explore Evolution that cited the example of large morphological differences between various species of silver sword plants in Hawaii. And obviously, Hawaii is, is one of these sort of island laboratories, so to speak, as evolutionary right. biologists will call them, where you get reproductive isolation on these islands. And then you can get sort of great degrees of divergence going on in weird conditions where strange things can happen. And this is supposed to show the creative power of Darwinian evolution. And when you look at these silver swords, one is sort of, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in Southern California in the desert, and I know a lot of the different morphologies of various cactus plants. And you see these different morphologies, these sort of these, these short squatty things with spikes versus tall skinny things that are almost like a cylinder type shape. So is there great morphological diversity between the various species of Hawaiian silver swords? And if so, what does that tell us about the creative power of Darwinian evolution? Is this a valid counterexample to the argument you're making here? Right. So the, the argument, of course, is very seductive because it simply says, well, we have some mainstream consensus dating on when uh, the Hawaiian islands were colonized by these plants, and that is about 5.2 million years ago. So that would exactly fit the time frame of the challenge. And then you have uh, uh, 33 uh, species of three genera that are distributed on the Hawaiian islands that are all endemic to the Hawaiian islands and go back to one founder species. They form a so-called clade, a monophyletic group to a plant family, uh, which is basically the sunflower family. So they, they are... Uh, very well established to have diverged on the Hawaiian islands, and they could not be much older because the islands uh, originated just uh, these, these some million years ago. And if you look at the plants, as you said, there are very different types of these plants, even though they are closely related genetically, and, and many of them still can hybridize. You have some that look like shrubs or trees, other look like lianas, other have this kind of pincushion-like uh, growth uh, close to the ground. And so the claim is, well, that's our different body plants. And, and one botanist on the internet said, well, these are body plant differences much bigger than we find in the mammals. And therefore, this meets the challenge. And that sounds uh, quite convincing at first until you look a little bit closer into this thing. I would have several points to say about this. One is a minor quibble, which is not really important, is about the dating, because there are some problems, some assumptions that go into this thing. And it could be that uh, they are older. The problem is that all other radiation on the Hawaiian islands have an 
older dating than the silver swords, which gives a little bit reason to pause. But for the sake of the argument, I would grant the dating of 5.2 million years. But uh, there are two other major problems. And one is that in plants, we know that there's a phenomenon very frequent that is called phenotypic plasticity, that you have the ability of plants to grow in very different shapes and growth forms, even within the same species or in very closely related species, depending on environmental conditions without requiring any kind of big genetic changes or evolutionary changes. It's in a way built in potential to grow in different ways. And uh, if you look at the website of the University of Hawaii Botany, department, uh, you can find a lot of photos of these uh, Hawaiian silver sword plants. And uh, when you look at these photos, you find that you find these different growth types, for example, pincushion-like growth and, and shrub-like, tree-like growth within the same species, for example, in the species Dibautia waia leale, where it is obvious that this cannot be body plan differences because it's in the same species, if this would be body plant difference comparable, let's say, to the Pachycetus basilosaurus difference in the whale example, then it would be like having in the same species one animal that has four legs and a normal tail walking on land and the other having flippers and a tail fluke and being marine. And this as a kind of variability within the same species. And of course, still be able to reproduce with fertile offspring and so on being genetically identical and so on. And that, that is, of course, not the case. These uh, examples of different growth types, they are uh, looking superficially, phenotypically different, but they don't represent different body plants. There's no new tissue, no new organs. They are genetically very similar to identical. They are just different uh, amount of growth of different parts of the plants that create these differences. And uh, as soon as you have this ability to still interbreed, you can make a very, very strong claim that this cannot be body plant differences because it is basically acknowledged in mainstream evolutionary biology that differences in body plan go along with strong changes in early embryology. And these changes in early embryology have drastic effects on the later ontogeny and would prohibit any kind of possible possibility for hybridization and having fertile offspring. And it's not just that we have these different growth types in the same species, but also different species with different growth types can still hybridize, which shows uh, this is all phenotypic plasticity. And, and this assumption is even more enforced if you look at the results from genetic study that strongly suggest that uh, these Hawaiian silver sword uh, family or group of, uh, it's a tribe actually of, of Asteraceae, of the sunflower family, that the colonizing species that came from, from probably California from related plants there was a polyploid uh, hybrid. And uh, I researched the issue of the relationship between polyploidy in plants, which means a multiplication of the set of, of chromosomes and hybrids. And in hybrids, often they are infertile, but by the multiplication of the set of chromosomes, they can become fertile. And 
what is uh, found by studies, especially among plants, is as soon as you have this phenomenon of polyploidy and hybridization, is that you have a strongly increased phenotypic plasticity. And this, of course, suggests that you had an ancestor of this plant that was already very phenotypically plastic, had probably these different growth types, like some of the modern species in the same ancestral species. And then this simply uh, diverged on the islands. And of course, it became sorted. Some of the species, this uh, phenotypic plasticity became fixed and restricted to just one of the growth types. Other preserved the plasticity and have the different growth types still preserved in the same species. But uh, interesting thing is also, if you had this plasticity already in the founder species, then this founder species could be way older because the oldest island on the Hawaiian islands is Kura Atoll, which is about 29 million years old. So even the dating would have to be re-evaluated based on this hypothesis. So my main reply to this claim uh, that the challenge has been met with the Hawaiian silver swords is that it's demonstrably not body plant differences, but phenotypic plasticity. So is this an example, some people have talked about that species seem designed to evolve into certain alternate morphologies? Exactly. Yeah. Evolvability. Evolvability, yeah. And and you made a good point that the embryological differences appear very late in development. Yes. And if you want to account for this, you need to explain those types of uh, embryological differences that occur early in development. And those are the sorts of body plant differences that would have evolved in the Cambrian fauna, which is what, you know, we kind of start off with this. We see great divergences between the various Cambrian animals early in their uh, development, early in their embryology. And then those just continue downstream to lead to great morphological differences in the adult form. And so that is the sort of body plant evolution that we're talking about here. Would you agree with that? Totally, totally, exactly. So then this leads to my last sort of potential objection that maybe somebody might argue, because we've heard this in response to our, our arguments about the Cambrian explosion and the difficulty of evolving new body plants. And this is that what if in the past development was more labile? There was more elasticity before you sort of had this channelization that set in later in animal evolution that now prevents animals from evolving new body plants. And even as I'm saying this, Gunter, I'm recognizing there's a little bit of like a circularity to the argument. It's almost like, well, what if in the past body plants evolved because they were more evolvable? Okay, like what does that even mean? But this yeah. still is an argument that is made. We saw this in Charles Marshall's response to Steve Meyer in the journal Science. We saw this from other people. Of course, we responded to these arguments. But what is your response to this argument? And then that maybe they would say, well, today you would expect less morphological evolution uh, between sister species or sister groups because they can't evolve in the same way as they could in the past. You're right, right. I, I, th- I think it's a very cheap argument and a very convenient argument because before we could show that or, or because before the evidence showed that there are all these problems of discontinuities in the history of life, the argument was actualistic and that the same processes that are observable today, what we can observe in the Petri dish development of drug resistance, uh, if you multiply it with millions of years, are responsible for all the evolution in the history of life. Now that we have uh, these problems that cannot be easily explained with this kind of gradualistic, actualistic uh, process, uh, you would appeal in a way to an unfalsifiable hypothesis where there is not a shred of evidence for it, but you could not refute it that there was X in the past, uh, which we don't know, but which 
would have made it uh, possible for something to happen that cannot happen today. Sure, it could be possible. It could be possible that maybe aliens from a, a distant civilization visited us in the Cambrian and changed the genome and they didn't return later or something like that. You can make up a lot of stuff, but usually you're in science, you should have some, some evidence for this. And even if this would explain, let's say, phenomena like the Cambrian explosion, then you couldn't make the case that this also applies to all the other abrupt appearances that occur over all of Earth history in all major group of organisms, if it's the origin of angiosperm blossom plants in the uh, early Cretaceous, or if it's the origin of flying insects in, in the uh, lower upper uh, Carboniferous, or the, the origin of land plants at the Silurian-Devonian transition, and so on. Uh, there the same explanation wouldn't work and therefore it, it doesn't help to, to make this problem go away. Okay, that's great. Well, thank you so much, Gunter. Well, I just have one last question for you. As we record this podcast, it is May 1st. So my question is, did you go and march in any May Day parades demanding equal treatment for intelligent design proponents in the academy? That's what I want to know. I should have done that. <laughs> no, I didn't. It would have fit very well. You know, all the marchers that go out and say, we want equal treatment. Well, I agree with those things. What about intelligent design? I think that's another one of... Yeah, yeah, we're too quiet. We need more <laughs> more people demanding freedom for intelligent design. Yeah, going, going on the street, yeah. Fridays for intelligent design. There we go. There we go. Shut down traffic or something, yeah. Okay. That's all it. right, well, thank you very much, Dr. Gunter Batley, for speaking with You're us welcome. today. It's always a pleasure to hear about your work. Thank you for developing this really interesting argument and we, we look forward to seeing how it develops in the future. Thanks for having me. I'm Casey Luskin with ID The Future. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.